0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, your host. Each episode we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary or series and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up for discussion today is The Money Plane, part two of our special coverage of all three stories featured in the docuseries Heist. I'll talk with Oscar winner Martin Desmond Rowe, who directed The Money Plane. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch both episodes of The Money Plane before listening on. Carlos Monzón immigrated to Miami from Cuba in search of his American dream to own a home, a nice car, and to start a family. But when his wife struggled to have children, he hatched a plan to pay for an expensive adoption by stealing millions in cash delivered by plane to Miami International Airport. Miami International Airport was the scene last month of one of the largest heists in US history. The crime was a family affair, led by three Cuban-American relatives. The gang of thieves walked out with millions of dollars in broad daylight. The mastermind claims to have learned his skills by studying television shows.
1: The FBI. Money in the bag and don't scream.
2: What happened after the crime was even more incredible than the theft itself.
0: Martin, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
2: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, I can't help but notice the film studio you founded is called Dirty Robber, the production studio. (laughs) And your new Netflix documentary is about a heist. So what is it with you and theft?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did get in a lot of trouble at nine years old for stealing... book on hieroglyphics from the Bristol Museum. <laughs> I went to an all-Catholic uh, school and so Sister Cecilia got very mad with me. So I think maybe this was my destiny. That was the, that was the last major heist I was personally part of. Uh, I think getting busted at nine years old kind of teaches you that crime doesn't pay, you know. But uh, no, it's, it's a complete... We've had a... Our company's 13 years old this year. We're ancient in production company terms. And uh, this is our first criminal study, but I do think it was meant to be. I think it's, uh, you know, destiny has finally caught up with us.
0: Well, tell me how you came to make a film about this story. First of all, it's a story I had never heard before, which is very surprising to me because I think I know everything about every major crime that's ever happened. <laughs> um, so how did this story come to you and how did you end up making it? How we
2: found this story was the way, you know, you do any research. You dig around online. You you reach out to law enforcement. You you know you, you sort of read old articles, and then and then you connect to people. And then those first phone calls are so revealing. And when we very first talked to Carl's and and the team around this story, we realized we're like it was so Shakespearean. So we had this guy Carl's Monzone who falls in love with Brandy, the neighborhood girl, but it just so happens that her family are basically the local mafia. And so, you know, you've got this guy who's literally sort of well known for not being a street guy. He's known for being this normal, nice guy who was fighting for a sort of very traditional family dream. Once he had the money, he became a monster. Right. I mean, what he did to his family is the classic Macbeth story of greed and ambition, where he he had everything but a child, and then he ends up with nothing and still doesn't have a child.
0: It almost sounds like a Grimm's fairy tale, right? Like Absolutely. It, yeah, it has. it's a very dark thread. But as you mentioned, at the center of it, there is a love story and a family. And yes. given what we learn later about what happened to their relationship after the heist, tell me about what it was like talking to them, Brandy and Carl's, about their love story.
2: It's fascinating talking to them about their love story because there is still so much warmth and so much love and so much pain. Carls was Brandy's first love, her true love, as she says in the film. It's a very, very big part of her that still loves him.
1: But how could you love me so much and um, say you want to build a life with me and have a family with me, and then you want to throw it all in the garbage over money? If I told you I'll give you $7.4 million, but I will destroy your whole family, what would you tell me? Would you take the $7.4 million?
2: The family also blame him for, and not unfairly, <laughs> they blame him for them all getting captured and sent to jail and their lives ruined. I mean, this was his crime. He was the one that figured it out. He organized it. And, he, you know, there was Brandy's brother, so Carl's his brother-in-law, who became a central figure in the crime. And he ends up, after they successfully get away with it, he's spending all this money, he's going to strip clubs, he's buying watches. I mean, he's dropping thousands of dollars a night. And the worry, the concern is that, yes, maybe he will attract the police's attention, but he's definitely attracting the attention of local criminals. Mm. You don't suddenly have thousands of dollars a day to just throw away. And he did. And so he started doing this and and Carl's couldn't get him to stop. And so Carl's made the unbelievable decision to hire some local thugs basically to sort of beat him up and take some of his money to try and scare him out of doing that.
0: Yeah, torture him, really, more than beat him up. Yeah. I mean, I really couldn't believe. Those recreations, by the way, were brutal, and they really Thank you. drove home. <laughs> Thank you. They, they, but, but they really did drive home, because at the beginning of the story, I actually kind of felt the same way with part one, sex, magic, money, murder. At the very beginning, you sort of have the sense of, oh, this crime, as much as it can be, is kind of victimless, right? Like, right. stealing money from big banks, it feels very Robin Hood, <laughs> you know? and, right. and, and right. this And this guy had great intentions of what he was going to do with the money. But then seeing those recreations just makes you realize how corruptible people can be, even a big teddy bear of a guy who happens to be a great roller skater who just wants his wife to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) I have questions about that. We'll get to that. I was like, wait, he can
2: roller skate? (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) And um, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the discussion points that people have raised on this is like, do we think we're glamorizing this sort of behavior? And I'm like, wait, if you watched... You watch this story, you watch this story you and you it? got to the end of it and you want to be Carl's? Are you mm. kidding me? <laughs> like, this is a man who, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe he pulled off this crazy moment and there, was, there he has a lot of pride on that. And they all still have a lot of pride on that. But it cost him everything. Mm. It cost him over a decade of his life in jail. It cost him every friend he has. It cost him his wife. It cost him his marriage. And now he's back to what he was doing beforehand. And... You know, once you break the seal on any of these things, it is similar to, to Heather's story in a way, which is that once you become a criminal in your head, you unlock a floodgate. Mm. You know what I mean? Once you see yourself as a bad person, mm. I think that the checks and balances that culture and society have kind of ingrained in us, they pop.
0: Yeah, I can't help but think about sort of, um, I'm just going to say it, the false narrative of the American dream, right? So here we mm-hmm. have an immigrant, you know, the American dream is kind of all around when when you're a new American. I know that because I have friends who are who have told me this, and, you know, anybody who's really pays attention knows that that's a false narrative. There's just the bootstraps thing. It's just not real. But it does, it is a hope that a lot of immigrants have when they come to the United States, and I'm wondering if you thought about that sort of American dream metaphor, because here we have a guy who came in and he did get a lot of money. And of course it didn't lead anywhere. Great. But were you thinking about that theme when you made this film?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm an immigrant, I'm an American and, uh, and I, and I push back on the, the, the lie of the American dream. I would say that <laughs> I think it's complicated. And I think that Carl's already had the American dream. Mm. I think the problem is, I think the problem is not that the American dream is a lie, but that, it can be interpreted a million ways. Right. If your idea of the American dream is Scarface, <laughs> first you get the money, <laughs> then you get the, the power, then you get the women. Then that's not
0: cocaine everywhere. Yeah,
2: like <laughs> that is obviously what happened to him. He he was a nice. He was he was a family guy. He, yeah. he had all this normal this normal life, and he was tempted by what he felt was extraordinary. Because obviously, you know, there is there are holes in the idea that he needed, you know, a hundred million dollar heist to pay for a fifty thousand dollar. Adoption. It's Carl's truth that that mm. was what motivated him. But I don't think that's really right. the whole story. And right. I don't think that's not it's not the way human beings operate, is it? You know? And um I think if he'd kept working hard, he'd kept putting in the overtime, he kept making money, he'd be a lot happier than he is now. And I think he fell in love with a false version of the American dream. You know, he landed in in Miami, and within 10, 15 years of landing, he owned a house mm. and he had enough discretionary income to like you know they had boats yeah. Uh, small things they had a great life <sighs> you know I do I feel when Brandy tells us what it's like to lose a child in the eighth month
1: hmm. we did have to prepare funeral arrangements and um, I asked the nurse please let me hold her and um, so they let me hold her before I left the hospital and um I have to say that was the hardest part. Carl was devastated. And um, I felt like, you know, all of our hopes and our dreams, you know, had been shattered.
2: It definitely sent them crazy. You know, it definitely unhinged them both. And it doesn't justify what he did. Right. But it was part of what made it feel like it's what he should do.
0: I mean, I I do think you're onto something when you say that is his narrative of his truth Mm -hmm. of what happened. And, you know, in my experience talking to people who've committed crimes, like sometimes they come to really believe their own narrative. Brandy's take is really interesting to me because there's another part of Heist the Series, which we're going to be talking about in the next episode, where I have a lot of questions about the wife's potential complicity. And, you know, all of a sudden all this money has just shown up. But Carl's, you know, he hid the money. The whole plan was to not spend it. And I was extremely convinced that she didn't know anything about this were you i
2: yeah i don't think she knew about the crime ahead of time Mm. i do think that he was secretive and that he kind of wanted to prove himself to her and to the family um one of the characters i love one of his team who just loathes him
0: (laughs) And, (laughs) uh, and just are you talking about alex the car thief yeah
2: yeah yeah he views carl's as i think a lot of them viewed him before all of this happened as a sort of try hard wannabe you know when you, you picture like this this is a, this was an actual gang um centered around uh jeffrey and pinky who are uh, brandy's brother and uncle and they were a gang they were a straight up powerful gang and Carl's kind of marries into this gang and he he wanted to prove himself to them that was definitely another thing that was going on and yes and alex you can, you can hear when, when Alex McCarthy talks about Carls, you can hear, mm. I think, a real clear recollection of what they kind of all privately thought about him at the time. He was just one of these guys that wasn't really from the street. He wanted to be from the streets. He bragged a lot, just for the attention, one of those guys. I didn't like him. I went and spoke to Jeff and I'm like, look, I don't know if I could do this, man, you know? Sounds real good, but this guy's just a fucking idiot. I feel like even if we do go through with this, he's going to ruin it in the long run. But he was like, no, we'll keep him in check, this and that. You know, at the end of the day, it was so much money. I was like, fuck it, I'll, I'll do it. And so, and that, I think, gives me a lot of belief that, yes, Brandy did not know uh, ahead of time uh, that Carls did this. I I, wanna, I, I, I you know, a little bit like what you said, I've spent a lot of time in the past two years talking to people that have broken the law. And, you know, I've spent the past decade of my life interviewing people and and everybody lies and that's just part of human life and it's not even i'm at a point in my sort of professional artistic career right now where it's part of the job Mm -hmm. what's interesting obviously when you're doing a crime story as opposed to a life retrospective is that people have their own narratives around key truths that reflects legal
0: liability. Right. Or, or that, that, that reflect on what they want you to think of them personally. You know, I, uh, yeah, I, yes, that, that's absolutely. been my experience. It's like, you know, I, I murdered this person to protect someone else. Well, right, you know, right. <laughs> right, maybe. Right. <laughs> I, don't
2: know. I think a lot of it's tied in with that, um, that sort of psychological term of the, the intolerable truth. Right, right. It's, right. It's the, the, intolerable, the intolerable truth for Carl's is that he ruined his whole life by being greedy and selfish and mm. that was what I tried to engage with him on and that's kind of you know he realizes that and, and a little bit and that's where the show ends because I think that's what he's grappling with and, and, and then with uh, with Brandy I think her intolerable truth is just how much she knew and therefore just how culpable she is mm. she, she wants to sit in this place where it wasn't her fault at all right. and I don't think it was her fault I don't think she did the crime I do think that her family origin, and the fact that once the money was discovered, you know, she definitely knew about it the day after it happened. Right. And was very comfortable. I mean, they were in the process of adopting a child, mm. you know, and using the money for what they initially sorted out for. So, and she got in trouble for that, which we don't deal with in the show because she asked us not to, and, and, and we want to respect her, um, her wishes in that. I mean, she gave us, uh, a lot of people ask if we pay people, and we don't. We ask them to share their stories. I think if once you pay them, it creates the wrong dynamic. But one thing that we do do as part of that is that we work within the limits of their comfortability, uh, of how comfortable they are.
0: Is that how you got so much access to all of these formerly yeah. incarcerated people who, I mean, it's very difficult to talk to people who participated in a crime. It's not easy. And you have all of them.
2: <laughs> yeah. firstly between Derek and myself, we've done a lot of very successful documentaries. Mm. I made a film with Kobe and I ended up moving down to live next door to him, basically, for nine months and got him to open up. And I learned a lot during that process. And there is a lot of similarities between getting famous people to open up and getting criminals to open up, which is, it's time. (laughs) And it's really, truly demonstrating that you're not there to get them. Mm. Again, this went back to the kind of stories we chose. You know, we we didn't want to do stories with too many open questions around them. We wanted ones where people largely agreed to the narrative, where the courts had decided the narrative, where the truth was, by and large, done, right? You, you You know what it was. And so then when you have that anchor point but it's like guys the world wants to know why you did it and how you did it right and if you'll offer us that we will make sure that we use our skill set to create a version of it that understands you guys it doesn't mean to say like you know with carl's one of the most challenging moments was he in our interviews he wouldn't really engage in what he had said about when jeffrey was kidnapped so jeffrey ends up for those who haven't seen me yet jeffrey ends up Carls organises the kidnapping, then he gets kidnapped again mm. through a second organised kidnapping uh, by Carls. But then he gets kidnapped a third time. And this time, this is the kidnappers doing it on their own because they realise Carls and Jeffrey have money. Right. And, and at this point, Carls had completely lost his mind. And he purchased a machine gun and, and ammunition and was on his way, basically, to just shoot everybody and anybody. He was, he'd lost his mind. Mm. And we had um, transcripts from the FBI of the audio that they had recorded of the phone calls between Carls and the kidnappers, where he's saying, I don't care if you kill Jeffrey. Right. I don't care, I don't care if he dies. I don't care. And Carls wouldn't, couldn't get there. He wouldn't admit that, even though it was a matter of public record, even though it had been part of the trial, even though everybody knew he'd said that. Um, but I we couldn't get the original audio from it, just didn't come in time and the freedom of information request that we made around mm. it. But we did, we did have the transcripts. So we knew word for word what he said. And so I asked him, you know, this is the level of trust we managed to get to. I was like, Carls, I need you to record these lines for me. I need you to put yourself there and, and remember that. And it was that interview when he did that. That was also when I got the ending where mm. he said, yeah, I did I did ruin my American dream. I did ruin it. I did ruin everything. I was greedy. I was selfish. It was, a, it was actually kind of a beautiful day for us. And I think that that's, that's a way that we approach it is, um, <laughs> is a slightly unlicensed therapists mm. um, in that we Remove the possibility of a gotcha. And we, and it's, you know, sometimes that's a, not the, you don't, sometimes you don't want to do that, but, but but we're not, we're not breaking the story. This isn't making a murderer. We're not here to advocate for a mistrial of justice. We're not here to break news. We are here to, these stories that have been told, we want to bring them to life in a way that they've never been seen before, which is from the person who did these things, telling you how and why they did them. Right. So that was what narratively interested us. And so we could be like, look, this isn't a gotcha we're never going to shame you. That doesn't mean say we're going to make you look great because you did some terrible things, Carl's, and we're going to have to deal with that. Um, and you know, more props to Carl's. Like he, I think he wanted to be understood. I mean, I think that's, that's actually the clever answer to, yeah. <laughs> to your question. How do we do it? You find what is it that they feel misunderstood about, and you help them communicate that. Hmm.
0: Well, since you brought it up, congratulations on your Oscar
1: <laughs> that, that you've just won.
0: Well, you said <laughs> you've made some successful documentaries. And I think I'd like the audience to know that you've made some extremely successful films, including uh, the 2021 Oscar winning uh, short film, Two Distant Strangers. So congratulations on that, by the way. It would be remiss of me to not mention that. Thank you very much. I want to talk about some of your other interview subjects. Um, before we move on to law enforcement, you've got to tell Tell me, why did Victor wear that bandana during the whole
2: documentary? He's deeply connected with what he did, right? He says he's ashamed and he cries. And, I th- and and he says he's just a regular guy. He's not proud of it. Like, I think the rest of the guys are all still, in certain ways, proud of what they did. Mm. Even, like, I don't think that they're ever coming back to what most of us would probably consider normal sort of morality. Mm. Whereas Victor is, you know, he was a young boy. I think he was 18 or 19 when this happened. It was a guy at work that said, hey, just be a lookout. I'll give you a million dollars. I mean, it sounds like a joke, right? And he did it and he went down and he did time and he's never done anything like that hmm. before or since. He truly hasn't. So I think he carries a very high level of shame. Yeah, That's why he chose to hide his face.
0: Tell me about your interviews with law enforcement in this documentary. They seem at times extremely comfortable telling their version of the story, but there's, it seems to me like... Um, I don't know. I mean, I know from, again, doing stories that like this, even for books and so forth, that sometimes law enforcement, they also have a take and they sometimes are nervous that you're going to tell more that perhaps doesn't make them (laughs) look great or that, you know, that they they really want to convey their earnestness and and their attempts to solve it. So tell me about those interviews, because I found them like very interesting and a little bit different than sort of your average interview with the FBI guy, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, we, we interviewed, you know, the FBI were amazingly supportive, as were, you know, as were the local police down there. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, of all the three stories we tell in this first season, I think this is the story that could have benefited from a little more time. You know, what the FBI and, and, the, and the police did on this case is legitimately fascinating. Not only solving the initial case, but more importantly, ultimately stopping rising escalation of violence from Mm. before it got bloody, which it was most certainly about to do. Rightly, they're very proud of the work they did on this case because it's everything from, you know, DNA profiling to, like, setting up a wire to getting an informant to go in and try and entrapment to foot chases and car chases. There was actually a car chase that was part of the uh, actual climax that, unfortunately, we we just couldn't afford to... uh,
0: Tell me about that. I want to hear about the car chase.
2: (laughs) I mean, the climax of the police version of the story... They get all the information. They don't have any real leads, but they know that this thing must be an inside job. It's a, a sort of a police, a policing truth that they know. For a while, they put a lot of pressure on... Uh, it's another story that doesn't unfortunately make the cut. They put a lot of pressure on the wrong guy, mm. on this guy, Ozzy, the, uh, the shift supervisor, because he normally the money is meant to be in a cage, uh, they had a cage in the warehouse, but that day there were a bunch of flowers in the cage instead. So instead of putting, 100 million, yeah, <laughs> instead of putting $100 million in cash in a cage, they, they put some flowers. And the FBI were like, yeah, dude, you're really going to have to have a better explanation then. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> he really did not have a good explanation for that. So they, they put a lot of pressure on him, which didn't go anywhere because it really wasn't him. And then when that was a dead end, they had a lot of internal debate about going public with it. But they went public and they were fortunate in that... The very first person that Carls had gone to, to see if they, he would be part of the crime, wouldn't do it because he shared the view that Carls was an idiot and was going to mess, mess it up. But he also wanted the, I forget how much, I think it was maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars. It was a significant amount of money was for, for the reward. So he comes forward and then they know that it's probably Carls because they can connect Carls to the inside man or Nelio. But they want everybody else. And so they wait. And so they set up a wire on Carl's house. They get this informant to go in to engage with Carl and try and get him to entrap himself. And they basically have enough to get Carl's, but they want the rest of the gang. They want to know who else did it. They want to know where the money is. They want, you know, they want to lock the whole thing up. And so as they're doing a, uh, uh, you know, a sort of stakeout listening, you know, trying to piece together who this gang is, kind of like high-level FBI sort of gang-breaking work, they start to realize that, Carl's has had Jeffrey kidnapped a couple of times and then the third kidnapping happens while they're listening, hmm. right? So like they're literally on the wire and they're hearing Carl's screaming down the phone uh, at these kidnappers telling them, I don't care if you kill him. And they're like, we know you've got more money. You've got to give us the money. We're going to kill your brother-in-law. And Carl's like, I don't give a fuck. And, and this whole crime for them goes from a gangbusting thing to a, okay, we have to stop this thing right now. Right. The first thing they do is pick up Carl's. Because Carl's is like they, they they follow him and he's at a gun shop buying machine guns and, and and ammunition and they're like they're like oh my god this is about to go crazy, so they get Carl's and then they pressure him to help them track down Jeffrey before he's killed because the kidnappers are saying if we if you don't tell us if you don't give us you the money we're going to kill him and these guys are they're not good people they m- may well have done that so then the police using cell phone pinging and using Carl's. Carl's just kept them on the phone for ages and ages and ages, like going off on them, swearing at them. And then they tracked them down to this thing called the the princess motel which uh, i'd never even heard of this concept before it is a motel garage mm-hmm. which is uh, i don't know if it's a florida thing or uh uh but but it uh it's a motel in a garage so you can drive in and then you can uh go upstairs without being seen as the as the fbi guys uh, <laughs> adorably call it they're like it's for it's for cheaters it is it's 100
0: percent for cheaters yes he's correct 100 for cheaters
2: <laughs> um i was like wow you really this really is Um, That's somebody's version of the American dream. (laughs) (laughs) So they find it and I forget exactly how many kidnappers were really there. I think it was maybe four Mm. and two of them ran on foot and two of them ran in cars. Um, And so there was a high speed police chase in addition to a foot chase and uh, police were able to capture all of the, the kidnappers and capture Jeffrey without anybody getting hurt. This was a a major coup for them. They did everything right. They did everything by the book. And they really, you know, they brought the bad guys to justice and stopped violence without violence. So I think that they, so I think that's one reason they were comfortable talking to us about it and happy to talk to us about it. And I think that, you know, they didn't love it when they saw it, is Mm. the truth. They felt their side of the story deserve more time and they're not wrong mm. which we would had a third episode yeah but it's not it called could...
0: chase it's called heist guys <laughs> absolutely
2: absolutely i mean this is you know like <laughs> it is interesting to me the number of people that see the show as they're like wow you really glamorize that like this, the police were among the first people we got our feedback from and the, just looking on twitter i'm like i did not think people would watch this and be like yeah i want to do that and then i remember scarface mm. which is the kind of mac daddy of that thing he dies at the end right. in a shootout right. in his like early forties or something. Like I was like, oh, it's 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 channeling into that sort of like get rich or die trying kind of mm. energy where people where you know that the sacrifice is the future, but you don't care because you want right now to be so great. And and the way that ties in with the police is that, yeah, absolutely. Like it, it uh it is about Carls because it's his story. Yeah, who 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 are the like I said, these aren't crimes done by career criminals. Like, right? Carl's is career criminal adjacent, for sure. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> so are you, <laughs> this, by the way, you know, now.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's true. That's true. Everyone, you know, I, I'm sure I'm on some watch lists by now. But, um, you know, he was a regular guy and he chose to do that. and That was just what drew us all to it. It's like people do make this decision. I mean, and, and, and I, what I love about the series is the different ways that people made the series. Right. There was a younger young girl, she did it for love. Carl's is a you know is a middle-aged man who I think did it yes for love, yes for brandy, but also to prove his manhood mm. and to prove that he could be like these men that he found himself surrounded by. And then Toby Kurtzinger in, in the in the Bourbon King, he does it, I would say, because he grows up in a culture where it's not even considered bad right. until he gets so good at it and so brazen at it that he takes it past a line he didn't see. You know, so they all regular people who do this extraordinary, crazy thing. Um, but they all do it for different reasons and in different ways. and I, I find that to be really fascinating.
0: I think the one theme that sort of runs through all three parts of the story is the viewer is sort of challenged to think if I were in the situation and had access to an open garage with a hundred million dollars in it, like, wouldn't I <laughs> go in and fill up a bag? I mean, one, right. one thing that I have learned though, also from the series is how heavy money is. And I don't know why people don't know that. <laughs> why don't people I mean, know the- how heavy money is? It's very heavy.
2: <laughs> it's, it's, I, 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 I didn't realize it, but yes, it's it's something that, that they all, <laughs> they all bring up. Um, uh, and, uh, but yeah, you just don't, you don't picture it until, until you suddenly, you know, each of those bags, I think, I forget what they said, like 40 or 50 pounds, mm. each of the bags of money. Um, but, uh, yeah, like they, uh, It was funny doing the recreations, trying to get bags to wear as heavy. It was actually like, wow, wait, wait, another 10 pounds? Wow, this really is heavy. And (laughs) I mean, shows that, you know, Carl's obviously in pretty good shape because he managed to carry five of them, which is like, you know, it was impressive.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you pointed out to me that he did have, you know, a, a, a version of the American dream before the crime. And he's obviously really bright. He's obviously really driven. Do you think he could build that again?
2: I think, I mean, Cars is extremely smart and extremely driven. I think that, as are so many people as they age, he's in a calmer space with less to prove. And, you know, and I, and I think that there is a happiness in him that I think was probably missing when he was younger. Mm. You know, prison is quite humbling. They all kind of mention that. Prison, you know, there's a lot of ego destruction that occurs when you're incarcerated for a long time. I think all of them are actually a better people, this mm. side of, of, what, of what they went through. So I, I wish him the best. I really do.
0: Tell me about the roller skating, <laughs> please. I have to know, um, first of <laughs> all, how did you find out he could do that? Why did you include it in the film? Thank you, by the way, for including it in the film. Just tell me everything about the roller skating, please.
2: One of my uh, pitches early on, just in the structure of how we did the show, is, okay, we've got these very different stories. So I was like, okay, well, let's make sure every story has a really fun opening sequence that really brings you in, you know, that makes it where we get a little bit of that Ocean's Eleven feeling, or we get a little bit of that, like, you know, give you a little bit of that feeling before we sort of take you into the more documentary stuff, into the backstory, into the pain that caused the story. And so it was very fun with Heather, the story of her dressing up like an old lady and them hiring a private plane and all this kind of crazy stuff. And then for a long time, we weren't really sure what to do for the opening of the Money Plane story. And it wasn't, one day I was going through Brandy's transcripts and she talked about how good Carl's was at roller skating and so then we went back and I was doing another interview with Carl's and I was like hey tell me about the roller skating and he just lit up oh my goodness (laughs) he just he was just like he loves talking about it and it was a very early source of pride he went from being very bad at roller skating to being very good through willpower and determination and was very proud of it and uh, and after that, you know, I just sort of realised that that was definitely going to be the opening of the whole thing. I was like, can you still roller skate? And he can, he's still really good. I mean, behind the uh, curtain, he... Wasn't as good as he was before, <laughs> before he spent a decade in jail. He was so we than did. Me. We, <laughs> he's a lot better than me. But we all, we did hard. We, we did. There is uh, some of the the, the fast spins that we we actually managed to find in Miami a body double for. <laughs> I think I think Carl's a six foot five or six foot six. A he's roller massive.
0: skating he, body double. Yeah.
2: So the very fast turns, which Carl certainly used to be able to do, were done by a body double. And and Carl's story doesn't end with him realizing he almost had happiness and he let it go. It ends with him still living in a fantasy. Then. And so that's visually where I, where I landed.
0: Well, the story is called The Money Plane. It is part of the series Heist. Martin, I loved, loved your part of this series. I mean, I really loved the whole series, but this was such a fascinating story. I'd never heard about it before. Thank you so much for unpacking it with me.
2: Oh, thank you so much for being interested. I really appreciate it.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Martin Desmond Rowe. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the third and final episode of our special coverage of Heist, The Bourbon King. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.